We're just going to read one verse, but this verse really highlights something profound, and that's a movement of somebody from darkness to light. It's a movement of how the gospel of grace can radically transform our lives once it gets into our heart and challenges our soul and, and reawakens our imagination to see the world in a new way. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, and he says this, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Uh, let me pray. Father, pray you would open our eyes to see you more clearly today through the text, that as we share stories, uh, as we listen in, Holy Spirit, you would really impact our hearts to see the gospel in, in and through the work of Jesus Christ, that our lives would never be the same. Have your way. And let us leave here today with a bigger vision of the story you're at work telling in our, in our culture and in creation and the way that you're calling us to take part in that, in that story. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. So um, as I was studying for this, I thought, do not steal. How applicable is that really? Because me, I mean, I don't steal. I'm not a thief. I'm not the guy who walks into the store and grabs a flannel shirt and stuffs it under my flannel shirt <laughs> and walks out. I, I don't shoplift. I'm not one of the writer. You know, I'm not that evil. <laughs> yeah? And, and the thing is, like, I, I'm better than that, right? I'm better than that. But the more I thought about this, principle, this text, what God is getting at here in the law, the more I realize there are ways in which I steal regularly, and there are ways in which I am part of and allowing thievery and stealing to go on all the time, all around me, whether I'm perpetrating it or whether I'm allowing it as it happens around me. Because I, no man is an island, we are part of the world, we are part of culture, we are part of the broken system that is culture. And it's a broken system that perpetrates evil. It's ongoing day and night. And we know the story. It wasn't created to be that way, was it? If you think back to the creation story, as God forms the world and then fills it with life, and he forms man and fills him with the breath of life, he calls us, in the text that we read last week, Genesis 1, I think it's 26 through 28, he says, be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, cultivate it. Take the raw materials that are all around you in creation and build culture out of it. You know, I could just see God so excited. He's almost scheming as he looks at the created world and he says, man, just wait till they discover at that little bean growing on that bush, what's going to happen when a little company called Bird Rock roasts it and grinds it and mixes it with hot water? Or, or they take that little that fruit of the vine over there and they squish it down between their toes in a vat 
and mix it with yeast, which sounds really gross. But man, when you have a taste of an amazing wine, it's like we get to taste the goodness of God in creation. And the wood from that tree mixed with the horse hair from that horse tail, somehow we're going to mix those together and create a violin and a fiddle and produce the most beautiful music. You squish these ants together and, and you take these like plants and you start mixing the, the, the color of the shellfish and all of a sudden you have all this paint and you create art and culture and the ore in the ground becomes metal as you add heat to it and you can build buildings, build civilization, build culture. And at the center of it, you get to tell this story of my redeeming love, of my grace, of my goodness, of my provision. A story of truth and beauty and justice and love. That's part of what it means, a seminal calling as humans to live in light of the gospel, to live in light of this first calling that God has given us. But we know the story, of course, Adam says, uh, no thanks, not your will, mine be done. I'm going to go out and do things my way. One generation later, as we talked about, his son Cain kills his other son Abel. And as you start to read the Genesis account in Genesis chapter 4, you see the line of Cain. Has anybody read that? You start to read about Cain and his sons as they build cities, as they build culture, as this guy named Jubal, who's one of Cain's great-grandsons, becomes the father of music. And this guy named Tubal Cain, the father of metallurgy, and they start taking the raw materials and they start building culture, but it's a culture of death. It's a culture of destruction. It's a culture of oppression. The first song written after the fall is by a guy who's bragging about a kid he just killed in revenge. And culture, instead of being centered on truth and beauty and God, instead of being centered on justice, centered on brokenness and self and death. And the poor are oppressed and the rich get richer. And the powerful, they're the ones that are able to shape society and take what they like. And the world hasn't changed much, has it? We look around us, there's a lot of brokenness. The metal that could be used to build more cities and farm more communities is still being turned into bullets. At the center of culture is still a temple. Something's being worshipped. At every one of our jobs, we have the opportunity to see culture redeemed and beautified and glorify God. Or we have the opportunity to see the poor further oppressed and people hurt and wounded. Culture is a broken system. As we look around, we see not much has changed. So let me ask you a question as we kick this off. We see thievery all around us in society at every level. And theft defined, according to the Wiktionary online, is to take without permission. Very profound definition there of theft. So let me ask you this. As you, let's dialogue for a second. As you think about society at large, where are some places that we see theft, stealing, taking place? Marco. Online? <laughs> Marco just got ripped off online. 
Yep. I'm sure it's an isolated account. None of you guys have been ripped off online ever, right? Shannon, you guys weren't ripped off online, were you? Yeah, they just, Tom was telling me a story recently about somebody who called and tried to jack your computer from the outside and uh, said it was a virus on your computer. That's very exciting. And then tried to, tried to steal a bunch of money. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. How, how, what are some other ways that we see culture being used um, to, to promote stealing and thievery? What's that? Yeah. Yeah, so unjust wages, people not being paid what they're worth, us not valuing human work or human life. Yeah. Are there, do you guys see other oppressive structures in culture where thievery and stealing takes place? FIFA, bunch of thieves. I don't know what that is. Is that political? I'm not supposed to be political. Oh, soccer. Okay, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. FIFA. Anything else? What else do you guys see? Yeah. Sada. Mm. Mm. Wow, so, so let's take thievery outside of just monetary possessions. And let's talk about people's identities being stolen. Let's talk not just in the way that like somebody jacked your wallet and stole your credit card, but she's talking about in the entertainment industry, you see an image, a false image put out there of who I need to be when I grow up, of what I need to look like, of how much money I need to make, and it robs kids of their identity in a sense is what you're saying. Yeah, Ashley. Mm. Wow. Stepping on other people, stealing their ideas, cutthroat business culture. Yeah. Yeah. Kenny. Wow. Wow, so there's ways in which we actually steal the glory of God by taking credit for good works ourselves. Wow. Yeah. Matt. Mm. Culturally exploitative music and movies at large. Wow. Let's, let's bring this down. So we talk about society. Let's bring it down to our neighborhood where we live Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, your social structures. Let's talk about at school, at work, in your family. Where are some places that you've seen this play out in the lives of others around you or maybe even in your own? Yeah. Trey. Gangs? How so? Mm, trying to hang with the cool kids in a sense robs you of your dignity. Yeah. Good. Wow. Yeah. Trey, you just blew all our minds. And nobody's, nobody's like, he nailed it. Yeah. 
Any, any other ways in which, like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and daily life in our social structures, we see it at work? Yeah. Mm. Mm. Allowing gossip, allowing what's hot right now, hot topics to replace the truth and rob people of, of their truth, of, of, what's, of what's right. Yeah, wow. Yeah. How about stuff like movie hopping? Because that's, I've never done that. I'm just saying, maybe some of you guys have bought a movie ticket and then watched two movies instead of one. Yeah, you know who you are. Yeah. Or, or DVD pirating, or how about, how about just underperforming at work because you're ticked at your boss and rob him of, of the amount of money he's paying you for? There's, there's a lot of ways in which this happens, isn't there? In fact, um, there's a quote here from The Kite Runner, a great novel. Um, and this is, this is the quote. I want you to listen to this because it's profound. And we believe in common grace here at the church. That means all truth is God's truth, regardless of who writes it. And this is, this is a great quote. There is only one sin, only one, and that is theft. Every other sin is a variation of theft. When you kill a man, you steal a life. You steal his wife's right to a husband and rob his children of a father. When you tell a lie, you steal someone's right to the truth. When you cheat, you steal the right to fairness. There is no act more wretched than stealing. And as we've journeyed through the Ten Commandments and we've looked deeper and deeper into each commandment, I think something begins to stand out to us, and that is that we see how each commandment begins to relate to all the others. That, that at the heart of each commandment, they all come back to the same dysfunction, which is our inability to truly love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourself. That's why Jesus says to the man who asks him, right? In, in Matthew, he says, which is the greatest law? And he says, well, the greatest law, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so, in a way, all of these commandments, in a sense, are the outworking of this dysfunction in my refusal to truly open myself up and love God with everything that I have, and everything that I am, and to love my neighbor as myself. Because, as Jesus says, on those two commandments hang all the law and all the prophets. Amen? So, where do we see an example of this? Um, as we look at the text in, uh, boy, it's, it's Luke chapter 19. We see a guy named Zacchaeus. And he's, he's a lot like us. Um, I think he's caught up in this culture of brokenness. Um, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. <laughs> and a wee little man was he. You guys know, you guys know about this story then? Okay. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, you, you got to wonder as you read the text, you say, man, Zacchaeus is like really hated by these people. Why is he so hated? The, in, in, like the, in this culture, I mean, the guy works like, he's a tax collector. I have friends that work for the IRS. I don't hate them. I mean, I'm not a fan of their job, but I don't hate them, you know. But as you start to study out what Zacchaeus was doing with his life, you start to understand that he was actually robbing people of their lives and dignity. 
a good way to explain how people felt towards Zacchaeus would be um, if you'd seen a movie such as Schindler's List or a movie about the Holocaust, as the Nazis are oppressing the Jewish people, tearing them down, robbing them literally of all their material, kicking them out of their homes, possessing their lives, putting them in ghettos and concentration camps. And in the middle of that, in the middle of that, that broken picture of humanity, you have the Jewish Gestapo, which are supposed to be brothers in arms, but what they're doing instead is they're working in tandem. They're Nazi sympathizers. They're working for the Nazis, and they're profiting on the loss of their people. Like, could you imagine how you would feel towards somebody who was in that position? It's like, man, they're like a vulture, like a parasite. And they're seeing people robbed and tormented. And here stands this group of people, the Jewish Gestapo, who ignore and who even eventually join in. They even join in in the oppression of their own people. And Zacchaeus was very much like this. Zacchaeus was, it's a different set of circumstances. Instead of the Nazis, it's the Romans oppressing the people. And as they're, they've got the Jewish people under their thumb, like at the very point where the thumb meets the people, there's Zacchaeus pulling every penny he can out of this situation, robbing people blind, living in a really nice house up on a hill in Jericho, which if you've been to Jericho, it's one of the most luxurious places in all of Judea. And there he sits, and he's the chief tax collector of the whole region. And he's built his wealth on blood money and the backs of his very own people. As you look at Zacchaeus, you're like, man, how how could you do that? Well, here's the deal. You've heard the saying, hurting people hurt people. Zacchaeus is a hurting person who's hurting his own people, but he winds up hungry. He winds up understanding that this doesn't truly satisfy. This life is lacking something. And we see that every day in our world too, don't we? I mean, if you just go to the grocery store, you're in the grocery aisle, you're, you're, you're like, you can't help but see all the magazine titles in big, bold letters. He cheated, right? <laughs> Fool breakdown, she shaved her head. You know, you're like, Dang, man, leave these people alone. But here's the deal. We look at the lives of people around us who have everything that we could ever want, the wealth, the riches, the, the, the looks, the relationships. We're like, man, if I could just make what she makes for one movie, dude, I'd be set. I'd be good. If I could just date that girl that he's dating, man, I'm telling you, life would be amazing. If I could just have this, if I could just have that, if, if, if. That's the dream Zacchaeus is chasing, and he's wound up at the end of the rainbow, so to speak, and found out, dude, there's not a pot of gold here. It's a pot of death and brokenness and destruction. I mean, you guys know, like, I think even as a culture, we know that money equals happiness is a lie. We know that. We sing songs and write songs about it, and they make the top 20, and yet for some reason, it's like we still believe the lie. We still chase after it. In fact, there's a scripture about that, 1 Timothy chapter 6, and it really gets at the heart of this whole issue. Because the heart, you know, when you look back at the heart of 
Adultery, what's, what's really going on? Jesus tracks adultery back to what? He says, you've heard it's been said, don't commit adultery. I say to you, don't even look upon someone to lust after them in your heart. You've heard it's been said, don't kill. And I say to you, don't even hate someone without cause. What is this stealing thing tracked back to in our heart? Look at what Paul says to this young preacher, Timothy. Chapter 6, verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmless, harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Paul says, guys, this is a trap that... What's at the root of this is this love of money, this greed, and it's a trap. It'll pull you down to death. But when you love money, you'll do anything to get what you love. You worship it. You crave it. You ignore the damage it's doing. And even if it's leading to brokenness and oppression in this world, in this perpetual cycle of self-centered cultural systems where people are stepped on and rolled over and crushed, we still tend to live lives that ignore all of that. We ignore the needs around us. And I'm preaching to myself today because we live in San Diego where the second largest homeless population per capita is in the United States. And every day I walk past people and purposely don't carry cash so that I can say, I'm sorry, man, I don't have a dollar for you. I'm just talking about how it affects me. We have an out of sight, out of mind. It's not my problem. That's the world we live in. And the culture we see around us looks a lot like the line of Cain, a culture of self, a culture of death. And that's the world Zacchaeus was in. Zacchaeus had ignored the problem so long that he'd actually become a part of it. There's a quote um, by Martin Luther King Jr. I love. He says, to ignore evil is to become an accomplice to it. And that's what we see has happened in the life of Zacchaeus. He's ignored it for so long, he's actually become part of the problem. 1 John, the brother of Jesus, writes, and he agrees with Martin Luther King Jr., or maybe Martin Luther King Jr. agrees with him. (laughs) <laughs> being that it's the Bible. Um, and he says in 1 John 3.16, I love this because John 3.16 is like the reaction. For God so what? Loved the world. He gave. And 1 John 3.16 is kind of like our reaction to it. I love this. For by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to what? Lay down our lives for the brother's. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. And this comes to a head with certain situations we see all around us in the headlines of the news. I was talking to a young girl this week. This conversation she was struggling with in school, I'll just out her, it's my daughter, Lily. 
And her teacher was saying, man, with these Syrian refugees, and I, I guess it's cool as teachers to take political stances in school. That's kind of a new thing. You can't take religious ones, though, just political ones. But anyway, um, so she was saying, she was saying um, yeah, so what we have to do is we have to open up the borders and let them in. And then other people in the class were like, no, we can't do that. We don't even take care of our veterans. And it was like a scene from like Fox News. Just like banter back and forth in order to sell soap, right? That's what you do. You get the most polar opposite people you can in the same room, have them argue, fight, make it ugly and bloody, and then show a car commercial. And now everybody's going to buy a Lexus. Like, this is entertainment in America. And um, so I, I'm talking to Lily about this, and she's struggling. She's like, Dad, I don't know what we're supposed to do. Like, are we supposed to let him in or are we not? Well, like, is it opening us up to danger? Now, I'm not here to get political just to set you at ease. Well, here's what I, I, I told her. I said, "Hun, let me ask you this. What, what is the main thing we're supposed to be thinking about this through? What's the main lens we're supposed to be seeing this situation through? Isn't it our faith? And if it's our faith, then we get to look at like how God would treat the foreigner and the fatherless and the widow. What does that look like? We get to answer that question creatively. And guess what? We don't have to just jump in and pick a side either. We get to step back creatively and imagine with these brilliant minds that God has given us any number of ways that he's calling us to do something about our neighbors who are suffering. But one thing we can't do is stand by idly and not do anything. We're called to think about this. We're called to wrestle with it. Amen? Amen. Zacchaeus was in a similar place. And as we said, he had been part of this culture of brokenness for so long, he had just become part of it and began to be part of the problem himself. I can imagine Zacchaeus saying, it's not my problem. Look, hey man, there's always bad situations. Guys, there's always economic downturns. You've got to learn how to turn a penny. There's always a way to turn a profit in any situation. There's always a way to survive. And congratulations, Zacchaeus, you, you found the angle. You've done, you've done well for yourself, but it didn't buy you happiness. And what we see in the story is he comes hurting and hungry to Jesus. And I love this part of the story because Jesus is walking, and Jesus looks up and sees Zacchaeus in a tree. And he says, Zacchaeus, come down. For I'm going to come eat with you at your house. I'm going to treat you like family. Not like the oppressor you are. Not like the thief you are. Not like the cheat you are. Not like the guy who's become part of the problem. I'm going to treat you like family. Because God's grace is initiating. God's grace loves us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. So Jesus paints this picture of the gospel for Zacchaeus before Zacchaeus gets all his stuff together. Before Zacchaeus even repents, Jesus says, I'm coming to hang out with you. That's the gospel. God initiates. God calls. Amen? How many of you guys are thankful for that gospel? Yeah. Yeah. At no cost to Zacchaeus, but at great cost to Jesus the gospel is scandalous grace. And here Jesus paints this picture of the gospel before, before Jesus is betrayed and bound and beaten. 
before they see Jesus led away and crucified and buried and resurrected, before any of that, Jesus paints this picture of the gospel and the story of Zacchaeus right here in the text. And he says, I love you. I'm absorbing your debt. And what happens as a result? The text says, today, salvation has come to your house. What does salvation look like? It looks like grace. And what does Zacchaeus do as a result when he, when he tastes the grace of God? He says this, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. Just pause for a second. Why don't you think about everything that you own? All the wealth in your bank, all, the, you know, for some of you that's less than others. Like for me, that's all, you know, $500 in my bank account. But think about all the wealth you own, your house, your car, your possessions. Think about it. Imagine giving half of that away. I'm trying to train my kids on, you know, giving to God. And we talk about what tithing can be. And, you know, so every dollar I give you, take 10 cents. It belongs to God. Well, it's easier when it's 10 cents, isn't it? When you're like making 10,000 a month, which most of us here are, and you have to give 1,000 away, that's a lot more difficult, isn't it? Yeah, so it's important to learn younger, and that's why, like, guys, if you're not making any money, start giving now, because it's going to be a lot easier now than it will later. Amen? Woo! I'm on fire up here. It's the Dayquil. So, <laughs> but that's salvation. Zacchaeus says, I'm giving half my possessions to the poor, and then what? And if I've cheated anyone, if I've stolen If I've cheated anyone, I'll give back four times the amount. That salvation, that's justice, that's a changed heart. This is a guy who used people to get what he really loved. He loved money. But now you see him using money to love people. What a transformation. He's he's a guy who's gone, just like this verse we read in Ephesians earlier, he's gone from greed to generosity. He's gone from being a thief to being a giver. He's gone from being part of a broken system and telling a story of of theft and disruption and brokenness and oppression to telling a story of grace and painting a picture with his life of God's goodness. That's salvation. That's what salvation looks like. A question for you to think about. When you think about your life, where you've stolen. Maybe it's been pirating DVDs. Maybe it's been not performing at work. Maybe you're a kleptomaniac. There's grace for you here. Or maybe simply you're a part of a broken system where people are unprotected and poor and hurting. Instead of doing something to make a difference, you've said, that's not my problem. Out of sight, out of mind. And you've done nothing. In whatever way you've partaken in this broken culture of stealing, what does salvation look like? What does salvation look like for you? How does grace affect your heart? You know, broken situations really get our imaginations going. Back a while ago, there was... 
a really broken period where people were starving to death in the streets of London. And two guys took it upon themselves to really make a difference. One guy wrote a book. They both wrote books, and they lived at the same time in the same neighborhood, actually. One guy wrote a book called uh, Das Kapital, um, The Communist Manifesto. His name was Karl Marx. And he prompted people saying, hey, look, there's some brokenness in capitalism when, when, when people don't have a conscience. Capitalism without a conscience, there's brokenness in it. So we need to fight against it. We need to reclaim the government. We need to take it by force if need be. I think we all know, like looking back over the last hundred years, that that's wreaked some havoc in the world, hasn't it? That whether or not his ideals were right, the position and how to bring change has broken a lot of lives and destroyed, destroyed countless lives. Countless people have died in the cause of communism. There's another guy who lived, man, same exact decade, wrote about the same exact problems. His name was Charles Dickens. And uh, around Christmas time, we read this wonderful novel. I loved the, the movie as a kid, Scrooge, A Christmas Carol. Oh, Scrooge McDuck, you know? You're welcome. <laughs> Scrooge, like when you look at that story, you're like, man, I'm so inspired by it. But what's really inspiring about Scrooge's story? And it's as you look at the end of the story of Scrooge, you see that the spirits have showed him his greed, that they've showed him his doom and who he is, who he was, who he could have been. And Scrooge sees all of this picture, and then in the end, he sees his own death. He sees how he's made everyone's life miserable as a result because of his greed. He's lived this wasted life. And finally, he cries out as he falls into his own grave. And it's over. It's done. But it's not over, right? What happens? He wakes up, and it's Christmas morning. What a beautiful story. Life's never tasted sweeter. He wakes up tangled in his blankets. He was dead. Now he's alive. He'd lost his fortune. Now it's all back. All the lives he'd wounded and destroyed are still here. He still has time to make a difference. Now he's scheming, right? He's still cackling and rubbing his hands together. But it's not about how he can get more money. It's about how he can give it away. It's a heart changed by grace. And the Bible says the same thing. It says if you've experienced God's grace, you'll have a complete change of heart when it comes to your money. Nowhere do we remember this like Christmas. Jesus became the ultimate giver. The king left his throne. He left the wealth of heaven to become a helpless baby born to a poor family. 2 Corinthians 8-9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, say that, say for my sake, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Why? Why did he come? To make the ultimate sacrifice. He came to deliver us from eternal poverty, to share the undeserved eternal riches with us. All that is yours is God's, and all that is his 
is now yours because of the gospel, because of Christ. Grace does that. What grace did for Zacchaeus, what grace did for Scrooge, it'll do for us today. If you have a heart that's been greedy, if you have a heart that's been unconcerned with other people's issues, today you can have a heart that's become generous. We can go from being thieves to givers. We can go from just being participants, willing participants in this broken world system to becoming world changers and culture makers. You are free because of the gospel today to be generous. You're free to tell a new story because of the cross and the resurrection. So I'm going to pray for us, and then for those of you who are new, we, we end each service with communion, and you're welcome to come participate in that if you would like, and we're going to have some discussion questions. For about five or six minutes, we're going to share how, how this story and how this, this message of truth from Scripture is affecting our hearts and changing us. So we've got some questions for you up here that I'm going to walk through. So come on down, take communion if you would like. If you're uncomfortable with that, feel free to just hang out. We're going to come back all together and sing a song at the end, glorify God and dismiss. And I'm, I'm super thankful that all of you are here because today we do have the opportunity to tell a different story. We have the opportunity to be a new city, like, our, like the name of our church is, that creates a culture of love and grace in this world. So I want to challenge you guys to consider being a part of that because of the gospel. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace. While we were still sinners, before we initiated, before we said, I'm ready to follow you, you called us to yourself. You called us down from our proverbial trees, away from our miserable lives that <laughs> were leaving us broken and barren, and you called us into life. You called us to take hold of abundant life, to tell a new story. What grace you've given us. Lord, I pray that today, whether it's for the first time or the thousand and first time, that we would once again repent from the areas of unbelief in our heart where the gospel hasn't quite reached, the, the, <laughs> the unreached people groups of our heart, as it were, that we would repent and we would turn and believe the good news of your grace, that while we were still sinners, you sent your son to die for us, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor so that we by his poverty might become rich in every way. And thank you that you've given us the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin, to draw us to deeper commitment, knowing that it's not by our power, it's not by our intestinal fortitude, it's not by whatever thing we have that we think we can make our life better, but it's by the power of of your gospel at work in us and the power of your spirit living in us daily. It calls us to continually repent and believe the gospel and live a better story. Help us to trust in you today. Help us to really be a kind of people that build the culture that you were talking about back in Genesis chapter 1. A culture of life and hope and beauty and truth. Help us to look at our jobs differently when we go back to work tomorrow and say, I don't want to just be part of a broken system anymore. How can I use this job for God's glory? How can I paint a picture of grace through whatever it is that I do, licking envelopes, teaching kids, 
loving people, hammering a nail into some wood. How can I paint a picture of the gospel here? Lord, I pray we'd be forever changed. In Jesus' name, amen.